not just mental assent. I don't just believe in my mind without a change in my heart. Um, I don't, I, it's not just something that I can mentally ascend to and then all of a sudden, poof, because I know about it, then I'm saved. It's so much more than that. Jesus, as we went through John 1, 2, 3, and we've been through John 4 now, we're realizing that John gives a theme about this Christ and this new birth experience, and he's telling you that God has to have his hand in your born-again experience. Not only that, but God's hand has to be evident in your born-again experience. Amen? Now, last Sunday night, we... Uh, we talked about, I don't even think I got the same notebook as I had last week, okay? Uh, let me see if I can find it. Nope, can't find it. I had it in a different notebook. That's okay. Last Wednesday, we pretty much talked about why the gospel, how the gospel had to be for real, amen? How we had to come we had to come and there had to be a change in our life, amen, that we couldn't just profess Christ. We talked about uh, James, where James says faith without works is dead being alone, amen. In other words, faith, that, that person who says I believe, yet there's no fruit, there's no evidence that I believe, that person, John Wesley said to that person, I will tell them, you must be born again. Amen? Because it's not enough just to say, okay? The real born again experience produces fruit. Now, there's a big difference between what I'm saying and what a lot of people nowadays are saying. Nowadays, you have a lot of people saying you have to earn salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is there's going to be proof that you're really born again. In other words, works are not the root of your salvation. They're the fruit of your salvation. There's a big difference between the root and the fruit. The root means this is how I get saved. Now, the root of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. According to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen. Mike listened to that whole sermon series, didn't he? Tonight, I'm dealing with the subject of Christians after they have believed. So I want you to understand context, amen. We also are understanding that when we're saying all of this, what I'm getting at tonight as we're counting the cost, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, just in case you didn't figure that out yet, okay? Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, and I want to go ahead and read it. If that's okay. And I will be reading out of the ESV tonight. Uh, I didn't bring my King James. Uh, you can sue me later. Uh, not John 14. Luke 14. I got this fancy bookmark. Maybe I ought to use it. Starting at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and turned and said, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet, great, yet a great way off, he will send delegates and ask for terms of peace. And therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has 
cannot be my disciple. Now, I talked about this last Sunday night. I know I did, okay? Not last Wednesday night, excuse me. Last Wednesday night, I brought this verse up. We even turned to it and we parsed out that there was three separate things that are required statements in this little paragraph. One requirement, unless you love me more than anyone else, you cannot be my disciple. Second requirement, if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Then the third, if you're not willing to renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Now, if you have one of them fancy King James Bibles like Mike does that got red letters in it, you'll notice that this is Jesus speaking. Amen? I read uh, a few books while I was on vacation. I know people, uh, you know, people still read actual books, not the electronic kind, right? Uh, but I was reading, John MacArthur has a book and it's called Only Jesus, what it really means to be saved. And the first, it, just the introduction was so amazing to me that when I read, I read that introduction and then I read uh, just one little page out of John Wesley's book on prayer and it was God's providence working out in this because we had talked about this that Wednesday night and then I read this and then I read John Wesley and then I went to church on Sunday morning and Alistair Begg preached almost exactly on the same thing that I preached Wednesday prior to going down there. But I wanted to read to you a few excerpts from John's book, Only Jesus. Our Lord has no interest in gathering half-hearted or occasional followers. That's a huge statement. Because nowadays, what we do is we try to just, Jesus just gets in where he can fit in. You know what I mean? Like, if I got time, I'm going to pray. If I got time, I'm going to read my Bible. If I got time, I'll, I might stop in at that place over there where all the other church members gather, you know. And I might see them if I got time. I might, I might even give if I, if I got enough money and if I think, I think I'm inclined to give, I might give. I might not, though. Nowadays, it seems like this life in Christ, somehow everything started to become optional, like prayer somehow for God's people is optional, or, or, or meeting together and praying together and reading the word together. All of that somehow becomes optional in modern Christianity. Now, I would ask you to go in your Bible and you show me where... That is normal in the scriptures of those who believe. My problem is not with anybody. It's with what I see in scripture and what I see in me and what I see in you and what I see in modern Christian faith. Amen. The reality is I'm not pointing fingers at you like this. I'm pointing fingers at you like this. Amen? Because we all fall short in this, in this area, in this aspect. And the reality is we all need correction. Amen? And as I read the word of God, I was being corrected. I want to read another excerpt from John's book, Only Jesus. And he's talking about this specific set of verses because he goes over Luke 14. Following him does not mean adding him to an adjunction or an adjunct or as an adjunct to a list of things we already love and worship. Radical changes are wrought in the hearts and the lives of those who truly answer Christ's call to discipleship. He is Lord of all, Acts 10, 36. And genuine believers will confess and yield to that truth. 
those who treat him merely as an addendum to their other pastimes or their other priorities have not yet truly believed in him. And that's the part that gets me because we can easily fall into apathy and we can easily fall into to, to putting God over here. Well, Lord, I, you know, I got to go to worship. Just, just kind of stay over here for right now, okay? And, or, or I got to do, do this other thing, God. Will you just sit up? Uh, look, look, God, I'm going out with the girls tonight. So, you know, uh, if, if you just stay right here, I'll be back and I'll see you in a little bit. Can I get an amen or an oh my or an oh me? Amen? <laughs> I've covered this topic in many, 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 many different sermon titles, of which I'll name just a few. <laughs> I preached a sermon called The Cost of Discipleship, where I talked about this set of verses, where I talked about Mark 8, where Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, must take up his cross Amen? Deny himself and follow me. Amen? Preach that whole sermon, the cost of discipleship. I preached one called Seeking Him, and I, we laid out what it looked like to seek after God. And the only reason we, that sermon came about was because Shelly had messaged me on Facebook and said, Hey, what does it really mean to seek after God? So we went through scripturally in the New Testament, what it looks like to seek after God. And we found some commonalities. The commonalities were God's people, those seeking God, prayed. Amen? Those seeking God read God's word, applied God's word to their life. Amen? Those seeking God got together with other people who were seeking God. They prayed for those people. They served with those people. Amen. They shared their faith. Preached this sermon many other ways when I preached that sermon series called, uh, oh goodness, now I'm going to forget, Relentless Pursuit. I preached Relentless Pursuit for five months one sermon after another about what it looked like seeking God, running after God, always pursuing Christ. And how we must, the Bible says we must persevere because only those who persevere to the end, that people, those people shall be saved. Not just merely the ones that made a profession 15 years ago and walked an aisle and prayed a little prayer and sang a little song, got wet maybe. That doesn't mean anything if there's not a real born-again experience. We live in a day and an age where Christians believe many biblical truths, many biblical commands are simply optional. Or that we can apply them at our leisure. Now, anybody know what leisure means? When you're doing something at your leisure or your leisure, that means you're doing it in your free time. You're doing it with your leftover time. You're doing it when you're not doing anything else, that's what you'll do, right? The problem with leisurely Christianity is that the more you put it off, the less likely you are going to do it anyway. That's why the Bible is emphatic when it says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Right now, right now, today. Not tomorrow. You don't have tomorrow. You can't say, well, tomorrow I'll live for God, or well, tomorrow I'll witness to my family, or well, tomorrow I'll pray for those people that asked me to pray for them on Facebook. Can I get an amen on that? How many times you, I'll pray for you, and all you really do is, say I'm going to pray for you and you don't really actually get in your prayer closet and get on your knees and can I get an amen they think that they can simply be tacked on to the back side the back end of whatever I'm doing whatever I'm already doing I'll just tack on this Jesus guy at the end of that 
the backside of it. I'll tack on this prayer stuff here at the end of everything. When in reality, Jesus, when he was rebuking those people that were buying and selling in the temple, what did he say? My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. Why? You go back and you read where Solomon built that temple. Solomon built the temple and he said, Lord, I pray that you would give ear to all those who pray a prayer in this place. Whether they be from Israel, whether it be from afar off, God, that you would hear their prayer and answer them from this place. Prayers made in this place towards you, God. And that's when we got our most uh, notable verse of scripture where he, he tells Solomon, if my people are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Come on. But that was all contingent. Because later on, right after that whole famous verse, where if my people who call by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I heal from heaven and heal their land. That verse, he says, but if you don't listen and you turn away and you serve other gods, I will not hear your prayers. And I will make this place a laughing stock, a wayward, a byword place where people walk by and they mock it. You want the proof of that? Go to Jerusalem right now where the Temple Mount has a Muslim mosque on it. Where the people of God cannot even get on the mountain. And that wasn't there. That wasn't God's doing just because God wanted to do it, that was God's judgment because they did exactly the opposite of what they professed they wanted to do. People today, they are just adding these things on. They're just an adjunct. They're just an addendum to the things that we're already doing. I'll do it if I have time. I'll, I'll do it if, if I get around to it. Truly, Modern Christianity, and I'm using air quotes, has done this with the very gospel and the born-again experience. I want you to hear these words very clearly. You're okay. You just need a little Jesus, and then you'll be perfect. That's what they say today. You're all right. You're, you're just fine. No, you're not. You need to get on your face before Almighty God. Even Christians should be walking in humble, repentant life that are humbled before God, that are walking in constant repentance because they know that they are not. Without Christ, they are not worthy of anything. That's not the message you hear today. Oh, God loves you and you're worth it. Oh, no. God just needed you so much. No, that's not the gospel. That's never said in the Bible that God needed you. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Don't get that mixed up with the fact that God needed you because that's not taught in the Bible. God doesn't need anything. God is God. God doesn't need anything outside of himself for him to continue to be completely self-existent, completely holy, completely happy, all in, a, in and of himself. God did not have to make man. The Bible says that God made man because it pleased him to do so. It was for God's good pleasure. He didn't even make you for you. He made you for his pleasure. Let that sink in. When you think, I'll do what I want to do. When you think, oh, I can, I can take this part of scripture and I can leave that part over there. Amen? Makes you really think about it when you understand who God is and who you are. Uh -huh. 
these people who say these things that you're okay, you just need a little Jesus and you'll be perfect. They bypass things that are vital to becoming saved. They bypass things that are vital to being born again. They bypass things that are vital for and to our walk with Christ. Tonight will be a night of reckoning. A night of reckoning in your heart and a night of reckoning in your life. A weighing out, if it were, of your life, which is not going to end tonight. A weighing out of your life that will continue Sunday and the next day. And I pray prayerfully every day you wake up, you're weighing and asking and seeking and knocking and praying. Tonight is an examination of ourself, which may cause some discomfort, but shall also reveal and yield repentance, revival, and a recommitting in resolute faith to following Christ without reservation. I want to get back to the text. I wrote that paragraph there that I just read from my notes for a very specific purpose because I wanted you to understand my heart in preaching this message because we have so many things that take our time away from God. So many things. How many of you got a job? Raise your hand if you got a job. Come on. Just telling you, work takes time. Amen? I, I remember... I remember when I was still working at Cessna how, how hard it was to uh, plan a time of prayer, or plan a time of Bible study, and I thought, man, man, if I didn't have to work at Cessna, I'd do that. You know what I found out when I left Cessna? That I still make excuses. That's what I found out. And it doesn't matter if you got a job or not. There's so many things in life that want to pull you away from your personal time with God. Not only that, I want to talk about how there's so many things in life that want to pull you away from the corporate experience of being a part of the body of Christ. Amen? How many times do you wake up on a Sunday morning or, or on a Wednesday morning or a or, you know, men's prayer breakfast morning, and we go, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth it. Amen? How many of you wake up on Sunday morning? Every Sunday morning you wake up, you're just ready for church, okay? Because if that's you, your pastor isn't there. Because there's still Sunday mornings where I wake up, even though I've prayed, even though I've prepared, even though I've, I've labored over the message, I still go, golly, man. You know, I still... Really, 10 more minutes. Right? Why? Because the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. And if you don't think your flesh is weak, we can pray for you first when this service is over, okay? Because these men who walked with Christ, who knew him, who saw him walk on water, who saw him raise the dead, who saw him cast out devils, who saw him, <coughs> excuse me, divide loaves and fishes and multiply it, who saw him bring great abundant fish out of the, the, the Sea of Galilee so much so that they couldn't even haul the, the net in. These same men who saw all that Jesus took him to the garden. The night he was betrayed. He said, can you pray with me? Just for an hour. And these men who watched devils flee from him, who rejoiced that, that, that the kingdom of God had come, they would find their little spot up the rock and they'd get down and they'd start praying like Jesus was praying. Jesus came back and there was all asleep. And he woke him up 
Could you not pray with me one hour? Could you not tarry with me just one hour? The problem is if we don't develop the habits of living for Christ, we will not do it. Period. Faith is given to every man. Amen. The Bible says that he's given a measure of faith, right? And then we're also told to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Hold on a minute. I, you gave me the faith. Aren't you going to build it up for me, God? That ain't how it works. Why does he say work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Why? Because he wants you to follow him. And he's not going to follow himself for you. That's not how it works. It isn't. Come here, Mike. Come here. This is the idea that most people have of modern Christianity. Oh, you're just going to follow me now, Mike. You're, you're just going to follow me. And Mike's just meandering behind me, just looking out all over the place like, oh, I don't have to worry about my life because Christ just. That's not how it works. Now, Jesus does save us. Jesus does lead us, guide us, save us, seal us, and do all those things, but he still has expectations of you and me. Like this, I want to read the word of God. You can go sit down, Mike. Thank you. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of the scornful, stand in the way of sinners. Amen? But what his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law does he meditate both day and night. That man, the one whose heart yearns, who's hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Jesus said, the hungry, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be filled. don't know how people who are not hungry or not thirsty ever think that they're going to be filled. Looking at our text, Luke, I want to make note of a few things. Number one, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Why does Jesus say this? Why, why the word hate? Why does Luke record Jesus saying, those who don't hate their father, mother, sister, brother, wife, children, yes, even their own life, cannot be my disciple? Well, first of all, the word here is a, uh, a euphemism. It means to love less. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 10, I'll show you almost identical words with just a little twist. Matthew chapter 10 verse, I believe it's verse 37. Let's see. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then here we have this phrase again. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. When will we get back to this kind of Christian life? I'm going somewhere with this. This whole thing is going to end somewhere. And it's going to end with the title of another sermon that I preached years ago that everybody in here probably heard me reference before. Outside of Rachel. She might not have remembered. Okay? It wasn't quite that long ago, Rachel. Number one. Everything in your life must come second place to Christ. Because even in the New Testament, 
even in the New Testament, the first commandment is still applies. What did Jesus say the two greatest commandments were? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and right? All your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and that doesn't change in Christ. Because once you realize John 1, 1, John 1, all of chapter 1, when you realize Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 22, that this Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a man, but he was God. You can't come to Christ and say, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you. I'll be, I'll be your, I'll, I'll be a disciple. But my mom comes first. Or my kids come first. Or my wife comes first. Or my job comes first. That isn't how it works. You don't go to somebody who's giving you the will, his last will and testament. This is what we got, right? Jesus' last will and testament that he had before he left this earth and said, hey, I'm coming back one day. But he left us his last will and testament. We don't get to walk in when there's a will being presented and say, well, I'm going to get this and I'm going to get that and I'm going to get this other thing and I'm going to do that. You don't get to do that when a will's being read. You get exactly what the person willing the things away is going to give you. And if you don't get nothing, you don't get nothing. And if you get everything, you get everything. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. You understand? Jesus was giving us his last will, testament. He's telling us unequivocally that he makes the rules for the will. And it's not your will, and it's not my will, and it's not your way, or my way. It's Christ's will and Christ's way and how he wants to do it. And if that's not your life, I'll say what John Wesley would say. You must be born again. Number two, he who does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I wrote a little note. This cross, this cross that we're bearing, because so often people, uh, they, they get all these illusions of what the cross is. Oh, I guess this is just my cross to bear. Well, what is that? Your family? No, that's your responsibility anyway. Your family's your responsibility, in case you didn't realize that, okay? Biblically, your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, when things happen in your family, biblically, they're your responsibility, okay? You want to talk about that being the cross to bear? That's not the cross to bear. The cross to bear is this. I live for God in the face of any persecution. I live for Christ. In the face of any opposition, any persecution, any hardship, any event in my life that will try to take me away from the path that Christ has put me on, that's bearing the cross. And it's willing to do that even if it costs you your life. That's the cross you bear. The cross you bear is living for Christ even when it's not popular, even when it's not easy, even when your flesh wakes up on Sunday morning and says, you know, you could just call everybody and say, hey, we're not having church today. Sure could, Pastor. You could do that. I could. Wouldn't be right. Wouldn't be God's will. But I could. The problem is, it's not up to me. It's not up to you. And every morning you need to come to the realization that whatever you're going to do today, you're going to do to glorify God. I wish people would still read the old things of the church, okay? If you go back and read the Westminster Confession of Faith, the very first question that they ask you is what is man's chief end? 
Man's chief end is this, to glorify God and to, and, and to enjoy him forever. That's the answer. Our job is to bring glory to God. That's the reason God made man, to bring himself glory. And it's our privilege to be able to enjoy our creator forever. That's it. And we do that in the face of persecution, hardship, events that may even cost us our life. That's bearing your cross. The context, nearly every time that Jesus is bringing this up, has already been with a group of people that Jesus has talked to about being his disciple or following him or coming to him. And this is the context that we're reading this into. Anyone who wants to follow me, wants to be my disciple, you got to take up your cross. You got to live for me when it's not easy. You got to live for me when it's not popular. You got to live for me when you're when everybody in your life goes, well, I just think you're a, a hypocrite, sold out. I think you're just one of them religious fanatic. I don't care. Whatever they say about you. The Bible said, Jesus said, they'll hate you. They hated me. They will hate you. And if people aren't hating you, it's, it very well could be because you're hiding your light under a bushel anyway. And it's time for us to take the bowl off there. Why else have we got things going on in the world that are going on in the world? And everybody thinks, well, what's the problem with this? Watched an interview earlier today. Street evangelist was talking to a transgender person, cross-dressing male. His name was Victor. That's his real name. Went by Victoria. But he was a Christian, and he goes to church. And he knows all kinds of other gay people and transgender people that go to his church. And that church just loves people and accepts people and And he asked him, he said, does your church warn you that that kind of lifestyle is not conducive with the gospel? That that kind of lifestyle, the Bible says that no thief, no liar, no homosexual will inherit the kingdom of God? Well, no, they don't really, they, they just accept us. So what I heard was we don't preach the real gospel at our church. We don't talk about sin at our church. We just patty cake people and tell them, hey, God loves you, Joel Olstein style, no matter what you do. God loves you regardless. He does, but he hates sin. And there's no way, absolutely no way, that God is going to look at someone who's living openly, openly against him, rebelliously, openly against him. Reject what his word says. Reject the fact that it says what it says. And say straight face that God's okay with me being this way. No, he's not. God's no more okay with you being the way you are than God's okay with me not praying for the flock that I'm pastoring. God's no more okay with... with uh, uh, a homosexual remaining a homosexual than he is with a murderer remaining a murderer. Because in that same passage of, in 1 Corinthians 6, he lists murderers with homosexuals. If we had a murderer walk in this room and he just confesses, hey, I'm just going to murder people and I'm going to keep murdering people, but God loves me. But we're supposed to accept the fact that because he said so, he's born again. Even though he's going to murder again. Even the bold testimony, I'm going to keep murdering. We wouldn't do that, would we? We'd look at him right in the face and say, no, I, don't, I think you need to come back to the Bible and really understand that you've got to change. So what's the difference between the thief or the murderer? the homosexual or the adulterer or the fornicator. What's the difference? 
nothing. Every one of them must repent. Must repent. Turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. Christ alone. But they must be born again. They can't be left the same way that they started. That's not the gospel. Number three. And we're going to get to the point right here. John, or Luke, Luke 14. Let me get back to Luke. I was still in Matthew 10. Luke 14. This last part is very important. He gives them, and I, I'm just going to read you a little note about the two parables that he gave, because he gave a parable about uh, the king going to war, and he gave a parable about building a tower, okay? What do these parables have to do with what he's talking about? Number one, the parable, those who would be Christ, there are two parables illustrating, uh, one illustrating the building of a tower and the other one a king going to war. Both warn against making hasty decisions to follow Christ. Now I want you to get this note from the ESV Bible the ESV study Bible, it says this. Potential disciples must first count the cost to see if they will persevere in the faith. This is the point. The point of this warning about getting started and building a tower or going to war is that we're supposed to take stock. Am I really willing to give up everything? Because if that's not there, there's three emphatic statements here. Three emphatic cannots. These are presuppositional, meaning if you don't do these things, if this isn't in you, you are not even able to be his disciple. That's what cannot means. The ability to be there is not even, the ability to do the thing is not even there. That's what cannot in this Greek word means. It's physically impossible. This emphatic statement that he closes with, he says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And that word cannot means it is not possible for you to follow me. Unless this happens, unless this in your heart changes where I'm first above everything else. If this doesn't happen where you're willing to take up your cross and live for me no matter what. If that doesn't happen, you're not able to be my disciple. If you're not willing to renounce everything that you have, you cannot be my disciple. And this is where John agrees with, with James, and James agrees with Paul. No matter how you want to parse this, Paul believed in you are saved by grace through faith. James did not believe something else. What James was saying was that real faith is accompanied by change. If faith is not accompanied by change, it is mere lip service. And not a real, genuine, born-again experience. I preached a message a few years ago. Several messages, actually. And they were called, Everything You Got. Remember that, Mike? Everything You Got. Jesus isn't coming. I'm going to go back to my MacArthur statement. Jesus, our Lord, had no interest in gathering half-hearted or occasional followers. This is important because we've got people nowadays who think, well, I can follow Jesus here. And, I and then, you know, if I don't like that, I'll just jump off the road because that's not Jesus. But the problem is the same people that will love John 3.16, the same people that will love uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and say, oh, Paul, Paul preached the gospel and he told us Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Yeah, he did. And that's true. 
And, and Jesus did tell you John 3.16, but he also told you John 3.18. Whoever doesn't believe is already condemned. And these words that I'm reading to you are not my words. They're not Luke's words. They're Christ's words. And he said, if you are not willing to love me above everything else, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, the born-again experience will show in that Jesus is first in my life. Let me put it in another way. The born-again experience will show the fruit that you're willing to live for Christ, take up your cross, and follow him. That's what the born-again experience will show. That won't be the root of how you get saved, but it'll be the fruit that a born-again experience actually happened in your life. Number three, the born-again experience, if it's genuine, will show a person willing to leave everything and follow him. I want to go through just a few verses here that are uh, notated in my uh, reference section in this Bible. If you would turn with me to oh, Luke 5, 11. Luke chapter 5, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. I got another reference. Go with me, if you will, to Luke 5 and 28. We stay in the same chapter. Now this is Matthew or Levi, right? Verse 27, and after this he went out and saw the tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Amen. Go with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 12, verse 33. We're not even going to leave Luke. All of these references are right here in Luke. We don't have to go anywhere else. Luke 12, verse 33. Uh, let's do 32 just for uh, context. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell all of your possessions and give it to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys where your treasure is there your heart shall be also and this is a very important note this is a very important reference because if we go back to Luke 14 and understand when he says if, there, if you're not willing to renounce everything you have we're going back to the heart of what Jesus was talking about he was saying you can't serve two masters you either love one and you'll hate the other, or you'll devote yourself to the one and you'll despise the other one. You're never going to be able to live for yourself and Christ. That's why Paul said, it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. I died in the flesh with Christ. I'm dead. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Last reference, Luke chapter 18, verse 22, and he's speaking to the rich young ruler. To the rich young ruler, verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Do you understand that our life in Christ is not an adjunct? We don't add it on to whatever we're already doing. 
Our life in Christ is not an addendum. If you don't know what an addendum means, it means an add-on. It's not just something you add on to. It's not like God takes your life and, and just molds it a little different and puts Christ in there a little somewhere. It's not how it works. When I am in Christ, the Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul constantly through the New Testament tells us to put on the new man, which is made in the image of Christ. Amen? If we're not willing to leave everything, we cannot be his disciple. And this does not leave room for an adjunct or an addendum or a leisurely Christianity that says, I'll just do it when I get around to it or when I got time. Remember that guy said, sir, I, I have a field. I, I just got a field and I have to go look at it. I can't come to the wedding. Oh, I just got married. I, I can't come to the wedding. I just bought a yoke of oxen. And I got to go prove them. Can't come to the wedding. What do all three of those stories say? There was something more important than the invitation that they were given. The invitation to follow Christ is the most important invitation that you'll ever receive. It is given to you freely without cost, but it also costs everything. He's not an adjunct, an addendum to your life. He freely gives you eternal life for you to live your whole life by him, for him, and to him with everything you've got. Being born again and a follower of Christ looks like what we read in Acts 2, 42 through 47, where they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to prayer. Followers of Christ pray. It is what believers do. If you just take a concordance and go look up the word pray or prayer in the New Testament, you will see that Christ and the apostles taught Christians they must pray. If Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the Son of the living God, God incarnate, if he had to pray every day, he went and set aside and went and prayed, and somehow we think we don't have to. And then we wonder why the church is powerless, positionless, and has no authority. Because we're trying to accomplish things in our own strength that are only going to be done through prayer. Jesus came to the disciples one night. The disciples couldn't cast this devil out of this boy. And the father came to him and said, look, I came to your disciples, but they couldn't cast this devil out of my son. And Jesus looked at his disciples. When they asked him, well, how come we couldn't cast that devil out? He said, this kind only comes out but by prayer and fasting. And I'm telling you, there's things going on in America. There's things going on in your homes. There's things going on in your families. There's things going on at work and in your life that will not come out but by prayer and fasting and pleading and seeking God. Followers of Christ read God's word. It's what followers of Christ do. Followers of God fellowship and are part of the local body of church, uh, of the local body of Christ, his church. It is what followers of Christ do. Followers of Christ come together to serve and to remember Christ in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in prayer, in the reading of the word. This is how we remember him. I want to read just a portion, a little quote from John Wesley. As I was getting ready for this message, 
The chief of these means of the works of piety he's talking about. Our prayer, whether in secret or in the great congregation, searching the scriptures, which implies reading, hearing, and meditating thereon, and receiving the Lord's Supper, the eating, the eating of the bread and drinking of the wine in remembrance of him, and these we believe to be ordained of God, the ordinary channels of conveying his grace to the souls of men. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, and he taught them. And he said something that's very important that maybe all of us need to remember. He didn't say, if you pray. He said, when you pray. Jesus' expectation is that we pray. Finally, I want to close Somebody say amen about me closing. I want to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. The great prince of preachers on chapter 14, verse 26 says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Our Lord does not use the word hate in the common acceptance of the term. For no man would hate his own life. He means that the love of all these must be secondary to the love we bear for him. Compared with our love to the Lord, our lower love must be more like hate. We must be willing to give up everything. To give up even ourselves, our entire selves, to him. For Christ will have all or nothing. He will never divide the human heart with any rival. If we profess to serve him, we must have him for our only master and not attempt to serve two masters. I want you to know that this is the reason, this is the, the, the purpose for which I wrote this message tonight. It was not condemnation. It wasn't to point fingers. It wasn't even to point out your flaws. But to say that every one of us, and I feel that God is leading me as the pastor of this church to exhort, to reprove, to correct, to train, to with everything in my being, tell this church and those people that are watching at home that go to this church that we need, we need above all things to live our life wholly for Christ. Amen? We will be different if we do, but we cannot expect different if we're not willing to seek Him, to pray to read God's word, to be together, to work together, to serve together, to share our faith, to live our life out loud in front of people. I want to close with a prayer that I found from quite a while ago. You'll indulge me. soon as I find it, I'll, I'll read it. <laughs> I lost my place now. Come on. Maybe it's in the front. Oh, yeah, it is. Okay. If you would, I would ask you to stand while I pray as we close. Grant, O oh Lord God, to all who have been baptized into the deaths and the resurrection of thy son, Jesus Christ, that as we have put on the old, as we have put away the old life of sin, 
so we might be renewed in the spirit of our minds and live in righteousness and true holiness. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And I want to close with the one more prayer that I found that I found very pertinent to what we're talked about this evening. It says, Grant we beseech the Almighty God that the words which we have heard this day with our outward ears may through thy grace be so grafted inwardly into our hearts that they may bring forth in us fruit of good living to the honor and the praise of thy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.